from Booksmart Studios. This is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. By the way, folks, we have a new idea for our subscribers, something that's a little bit more audience-directed and also somewhat more conventional in a way that I think a lot of you will like. So you only get this if you subscribe, if you give us, yes, a little money. Then the idea is that every week people can send in to me questions about, say, etymology, or if you have some question just about linguistics in general, it can be a question about language and society, send me your questions, and I will read every one of them, and I'll select two. Every two weeks, I'll select two, and I will do a written essay answering those questions and share that with subscribers. So we'll have a little club where people can ask questions and I can give the answers. We can all have what you know is often called a discussion, but really it's just that you're going to send me questions and I'm going to answer them. So let's discuss as part of the subscriber community. I love your questions. I've loved that about doing Lexicon Valley since 2016. Please keep them coming. Now, with this episode, I want to take something from the headlines and show what linguistic lessons we can learn from it. And we can go all over the place. And I've been really intrigued thinking about these things over the past two weeks. And what I refer to is that it happened, as it happens sometimes, that three renowned black figures passed away within one week. They were Sidney Poitier, Lonnie Guineer, and Max Julian. All of those names kind of get a linguist's ears pricked up. And I want to share with you why. The three cases are all quite different. For example, Sidney Poitier. Of course, he is the renowned black actor. And he was the first black actor who regularly played not only serious leads in movies, but even romantic leads. This is the first time you had a black man playing that kind of role. His career starts in the 50s and really kicks in in the 1960s. That's where he made a profound change in the substrate of American film. And of course, his career continued long after that. But Poitier was a superb performer, a superb actor, and he is often described as a pioneer, which he was for the reasons that I just described. But I must admit that when I was a kid, seeing his movies on TV and seeing his various appearances, I never thought of him that way. I didn't know I was supposed to think of him as a pioneer. I just knew that he was this black actor who had been in a lot of, back then, relatively recent and very important movies. And it never occurred to me that he was a black pioneer. Now, of course, he was a black pioneer in itself. But I never thought of him as a black American pioneer. And it was because of something about him that was never talked about very much, but that I think was socio-historically crucial. And that was this. Sidney Poitier was from the Bahamas. If you look at his biography, you see that he was born technically in Miami, but his childhood was in the Bahamas. That's where he learned to speak. And as such, as you would expect, Sidney Poitier had an accent. He had a Caribbean accent. He toned it way down. It was slight, but it was always very much there. Sidney Poitier did not sound like a black man who grew up in the United States in the early 20th century. He sounded like a black man who had grown up somewhere close to the United States, but he grew up in the islands, so to speak. So what do I mean? 
because a lot of people never particularly noticed this. It wasn't what you were thinking about because he was so good and the movies tended to be so important. But here is, for example, Raisin in the Sun. This is based on the Lorraine Hansberry play. Here is the film where you can essentially see the play. Thank God they made this film with a lot of the original cast, including Sidney Poitier. And listen to him in an early scene. He's talking to his wife, Ruth, who's played by the great Ruby D. Listen to him talking. So we're not looking at him. We're just listening to him talking. And notice a certain sound. Charlie Atkins was a good-for-nothing lawman, too, wasn't he? When he wanted me to go in the dry cleaning business with him. Now he's grossing $100,000 a year. $100,000 a year. Still call him a loudmouth good-for-nothing. Oh, Walter. Oh, Walter. You're tired, ain't you, baby? You oh so tired of everything. Me, the boy, the way we live in this beat-up hole, everything. Moaning and groaning all the time, but you wouldn't do Do you see, that is not somebody who grew up in Chicago or Philadelphia or L.A. He's from the islands. He sounds like he's from the Bahamas. Now, to zero in on this a little more closely, let's listen to something a little later in this scene, and then I'm going to give you a tasty comparison. This is the famous eat-your-eggs sequence right here. Eat your eggs. You're going to be cold. See? Man say to his woman, I got me a dream. She says, eat your eggs, they're getting cold. Man say to his woman, help me now to take a hole in this world somehow. And she says, eat your eggs and go to work. I tell you, I got to change my life because I'm choking to death. And all you say to me is eat these eggs. Walter, that ain't none of our money. I ain't going to be harassing your mama about it. I'm looking in the mirror this morning and I'm thinking I'm 35 years old. I'm married 11 years and I got a boy who's got to sleep in the living room because I got nothing, eh? Nothing to give him but stories. Like on how rich white people live, eh? Eat eggs, Walter. Damn these eggs. Damn all the eggs that ever was. And go to work. That's how Poitier delivered it. Now, we can use a comparison that also allows us to engage in a trope of Lexicon Valley, which is the usually semi-relevant or completely irrelevant show tunes. And in this case, it's very relevant because, as you might expect, and you would expect it to have been in the early 70s, there was a musicalization of Raisin in the Sun. As you would expect, it was called Raisin, not with an exclamation point, but it was called Raisin. Early 70s, and it played Broadway. It was a minor hit. And of course, that means there was a cast album. And of course, there was an early song that musicalizes the eat your eggs scene. Now, in the musical, they did not happen to cast a a Bahaman person playing Walter Younger. They cast a black American actor. It was Joe Morton, who we have seen since then in many movies and television shows. So Joe Morton. And now here he is doing the number, which is called Man Say. To tell you the truth, This is not a great song. I actually knew the composer Judd Wolden somewhat. He is no longer with us, and I'm going to say that it's a good attempt, but nobody thinks of the Raisin score as excellent. Judd Wolden wrote other excellent music, but what this comes off as at this point in time is a kind of a watered-down R&B. So I'm not playing this because it's a great song, but listen to this musicalization of Man Say, and listen to an American black man saying lines pretty close to these. Look, your mama don't want you taking no risks with that money. Risks? Here I'm talking to you about me, about us, and I'm all you got to say is, oh damn my eggs. Now damn all the eggs that ever was. Then get dressed and go to work. There's the answer I've been looking for. It's clear as clear can be. 
So what I mean is that Poitier had a certain sound and it wasn't a native American sound. And I have always thought that that was part of why he was the pioneering figure that he was. He was not just pioneering, he was transitional. That is, if Sidney Poitier had sounded like an American black man, I doubt if he would have gotten the roles that he did. In the America of that time, the openly racist America of that time, where maybe there was just a thaw beginning, if there was going to be this black lead, if there was going to be this black man, grown black man, often yelling at white actors and now and then charming white female ones, including actually marrying one in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? There is no way that that person was going to sound like Joe Morton. It's almost predictable that that person would actually have a lightly Caribbean accent so that he seemed somewhat different from pure American. And please be clear, I'm not knocking Sidney Poitier. I'm not saying that he was a phony or something like that. But I'm saying that that subtle aspect of his language was part of why he was where he was. Yes, he was a great actor. Yes, he was handsome. Yes, he had a great smile. But I posit this. If that great actor who was handsome and with the great smile had sounded like Joe Morton, if he had sounded like, say, Billy D. Williams, who also had an enchanting smile, he wouldn't have had those transitional roles because he would have been processed as threatening. After all, since we're on the show tune thing here, I actually can illustrate what I mean. Let's go back to the mid-20th century and see how black men tended to be portrayed before Sidney Poitier helped to change the game. There was a musicalization of Booth Tarkington 17. I was made to read this. I was probably the last generation that had to read 17 back in the mid-70s. And it's this you know, innocent lollipop thing. Booth Tarkington in his day was as big a deal as Stephen King or Jonathan Franzen, believe it or not. Now who cares about him? But 17 was big enough that in 1950 there was a musical. And the male lead is in love with, you know, this this <laughs> nasty young girl. And he's talking to a black servant and the black servant's son. And listen to the black servant. This is Mr. Genesis. Here they are having this exchange before the song I Could Get Married Today begins. And listen to Maurice Ellis, who was, you know, a professional actor, doing all this laughing which certainly wasn't in the script, but this is what's expected of black men at the time. Mr. Genesis, how old were you when you were married? Well, sir, I don't recollect. Well, Pappy, you was married once in Louisville. <laughs> well, well, when you were married, how did you feel about it? Were you kind of nervous beforehand? Well, I mean, did you feel kind of shaky, as if you felt you were taking an important step in life? Let me see. I did feel mighty shaky, cause the first time I was pretty young. <laughs> Mr. Genesis, how old were you? I was just your age. I was 17. <laughs> By George. By George. Oh, if I had a house, and if I had a lot, and if I had a lot of things which I haven't got, I could get mad. Today. See that? Yeah, I was just 17. <laughs> that was typical. Or Beulah. This is a TV show about a black maid. Beulah has to do lots of laughing. This is the opening credits of one of the television episodes that survives. I would put this in about 1952. This is Louise Beavers introducing us to this week's episode. 
Beulah Show. If marriages are made in heaven, my guardian angel has sure been loafing on the job. <laughs> What's so funny? And she's not even a black man because she's a woman. But that is the sort of thing that's expected of black performers at the time. Or Sidney Poitier's era, already at the point that this clip I'm about to play is happening. Sidney Poitier's in the movies. He's playing, you know, black man, sometimes yelling at white people. This is the climate. This is Bilko. Technically, the Phil Silvers show, but it's thought of as the Sergeant Bilko show. This is probably the best sitcom of the 50s. And yes, that includes I Love Lucy. I think in the grand scheme of things, Bilko was the one that stands up better. Shoot me. And this is one episode. Bilko is a show that's all about sassy New Yorkers. For the first three of its four seasons, it was filmed in New York City. And it was produced by what were progressive people of the time, including that among the military men that Sergeant Bilko was surrounded by, there was always a black one. That was a major gesture back then. There was nobody black on I Love Lucy, but Bilko, late 50s, there's a consciousness. And so there are, among many things, black people. There's a black guy and there's a black woman, and they show them often. It's not just once or twice. However, there's something interesting that happens in the episode Doberman's Sister. I remember when I first saw this thinking, wow, this is what you had to do then, even if you called yourself a progressive show. There is one black underling with all the other white underlings. Most people remember Terry Carter. That's Shuggy. So he's the black one, and then there are like six white ones. Okay, that's good. Now, at other times, there's another black one. When Terry Carter was busy doing theater or something like that, there was P.J. Sidney. So he would be the black guy if Terry Carter wasn't available. There's one episode... And yes, I've sat through every single one of them. There's one episode where the two of them appear in the same one. Generally, the idea is there's only going to be one. There's one where there's two of them. And I remember first seeing it and thinking, why do they have two that time? And of course, there's a reason. The plot of that episode is that there's some contest or benefit or, or something, I forget, where the guys are supposed to date each other's sisters, and so, ha, 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 and, you know, there's a little bit of cross-dressing, etc. But in this, the reason that they have the two of them is that at one point, they come out and have an exchange, the two black guys, where they are talking about dating one another's sisters. In other words, this show had to show that the black guy was not going to be trying to date any of the white guys' sisters. So you have to have the two of them in this one so they can have this exchange where it's clear that these guys are going to be dating black women, i.e. each other's sisters. It's the only time. And so listen to them. Here's the scene. Well, Shuggy, what do you say? Are you sure this isn't the same sister you hooked me with last year? No, this is my other sister. Are you sure this is your sister? She looks an awful lot like Eartha Kitt. Would I lie to you? Would you lie to me? Last year you showed me a picture of Lena Horne. Look, Shuggy, make up your mind. Yes or no? Come on, make up your mind. And one thing I like about the scene, actually, is if you listen to their voices, you almost wouldn't know, if you couldn't see, that they were black. And that's because some people say, I'm not sure if I completely believe it, but there are black English specialists who say that black English has become less like mainstream English since that time than it was. If that's true, this is a beautiful example because Terry Carter grew up in Brooklyn 
and he was educated. And so to an extent, he sounds like the other, you know, Brooklynese white guys on the show. P.J. Sidney also grew up in New York. He was a little bit less educated, but educated. And, you know, P.J. Sidney, uh, not Terry Carter, but P.J. Sidney, when he would appear on the show, the South didn't like him, maybe because he was taller. They would get nasty letters that they don't want this black guy in the group. But if you listen to them, they have a certain working class white sound. They sound like working class white New Yorkers. And that's because they were working class New Yorkers when they grew up. Interesting stuff. But anyway, this is the climate where Sidney Poitier's career took off. And it means that if he had been a black American sounding person, sounding off and charming white women, etc., that wouldn't have worked for that. America. And so Poitier always struck me as this Caribbean man playing black American roles. There's no question in my mind when I was a kid, and I'm sure that was in the back of many people's minds, but it struck me as something to share with you after his passing on this show that at least is supposed to be about language, although yes, you do get a lot of Bilko and Seventeen and obscure things such as that. Okay, so Lonnie Guineer. Lonnie Guineer is not known to as many people as Sidney Poitier, but she was very prominent in academic circles. She was a Harvard Law School professor, and she had an eminent career where she advocated for things like proportional voting rather than one person, one vote, and various issues relating to African-American justice and progress. Now, this show is not the place to discuss her ideas and her career in a pointy-headed, nerdy way. I'm just thinking about her name, because as soon as you hear her name, Guineer, and you see how it's spelled, G-U-I-N-I-E-R, you get to thinking. There's something that you almost know, and I want to share with you what it is, because it's something neat about English's bizarre, messy vocabulary. Guineer, G-U-I-N-I-E-R. That name traces back to a French word. It's a French verb, which today would be pronounced guigner. That's G-U-I-G-N-E-R, G-N in French, guigner. Guigner is an archaic verb. It's gone now, but what it meant was to make a sign, to show the way. My guess is that maybe that had something to do with prestige and hunting, and that's why that would be somebody's name, but guigner. Now... Guigné is spelled G-U-I, and the reason it's spelled that is because, as you might guess, earlier it was pronounced Guigné. That's what that U is there for. Where did Guigné come from? Well, French is a language that's really influenced by not German, but Germanic languages, specifically the Franks, and the Franks give France its name. When you're talking about Goths, such as Franks, spreading throughout Europe, these Goths spoke Germany sorts of languages. Not German, not Gothic itself, as we know it from documents, but various Gothic-y Germany languages. So there was more than German and Dutch and Swedish and Icelandic and Yiddish and Afrikaans and English. There were many other Germanic languages now gone or only known from scratched out bits and pieces. With Frankish, the word for make a sign was Wingian. So you have this French word, guignet. It traces back not to a word guignan, but just Wingian. Wingian. What this means is that the Franks give French a word wingian. 
they would have made it into what we would today pronounce as guinye. Then there's this g, guinye. That's a thing that happened with French. The original situation is w, but then a lot of words that began with w started to be pronounced gw instead. So guinye, 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 guinye. And next thing you know, that's the way it is. It ended up being a dialect thing. And so in Norman French, as in Norsemen, the Norsemen were Vikings. That's what Norman French meant. The Norman French, who were the ones who invaded and stayed in England for some centuries, they had the original W. English took in a lot of words that now begin with W, and that's from Norman French. But in the French that developed around what's now Paris, there was this gwe business. And so instead of saying guinye, you said guinye. Usually later on, not always, but usually later on, there would be some word that would make its way into English from that Parisian French. There's no reason why it wouldn't. It's not like people were standing at the border, you know, monitoring which words came in and from where and deciding that some had already been borrowed. All this was very messy. You would borrow what felt like a different word because it began with a gu instead of a wu. Now, why does this matter? Because of this. Think about a warrant and what a warrant is. Think about the spelling. You have that in your head? Now think about a guarantee. Now, think of how guarantee is spelled, guarant, and then the E, but, you know, who cares? Warrant, guarantee. You notice that they're kind of the same thing? You'd be hard-pressed to, you know, explain the difference in whatever it is. It's very arbitrary. It's very picayune. Warrant and guarantee are the same thing. Warrant is from Norman French. Guarantee is later, and that's from what we now call French French. Same thing. Ward, not Ward Cleaver, but Ward, you know, I am your Ward. (laughs) You never say that, but Ward. Now, guard, think of how it's spelled, guard. Notice they're kind of the same thing. Specifically, you imagine a guard standing in front of a bank and a ward, you know, writing checks for somebody who's too young or something. But you can see they're the same thing. They just happen to have been distributed over slightly different meanings. But ward and guard are the Norman and Parisian versions of the same thing. A reward and regard. Notice how there's kind of an intersection between the two. And it used to be that a regard was a way that you could say reward. That's because ward, guard. There's one more that I enjoy. While and guile. I'm not quite sure I could tell you what the difference is. While is often paired with feminine for some reason. So, oh, you know, watch out for those feminine wiles or something. And then there's guile. Aren't they kind of the same thing? Well, yeah, they are, because there's while and guile. They're the same word borrowed from French twice. Once from Norman as while, and then once from Parisian French as guile. Isn't that interesting? And so, Lonnie Guineer, the first thing I always think is, or Lonnie Winier, it's one of those French words. And in the meantime, this Frankish word, wingian, you know what that became? It's make a sign. That's our wink. And so you have make a sign and wink. You have Lonnie Guineer, and of all things, wink, Guineer and wink come from the same thing. Wink makes me think of various things, like here's something else that the 1950s were hung up about. This is a song called When Liberace Winks at Me. This is a young woman singing about how taken she is with the 
indication that Liberace apparently finds her romantically interesting. And this is sung by not Peggy Lee, but Peggy King. Peggy King is singing on television in the 1950s when Liberace winks at me. It's very catchy. And the little clink that you're hearing is that they cut away to Liberace playing the piano and winking at her because, of course, he found women romantically attractive. And so this is when Liberace winks at me. Clink! And there's one other thing about Lonnie Guineer, and that's this. With Sidney Poitier's name, there's a certain little controversy as to where that name came from in the Bahamas, because there was a Haitian infusion into the Bahamas, where Poitier, this Frenchy word, would have come in. But then also, the name Poitier goes back to much earlier English, apparently way back to the 12th century, because there was contact between France and England at the time. So... Poitiers goes way back in English, and there were some people in the Bahamas who had that name from English itself, with the English you know, running the Bahamas. But then there was also Poitiers from Haiti. So you could say that it's hard to decide whether Sidney Poitiers' name came from Haiti or from just earlier English. But you know, you can know, if you ask me, and nobody did, but you can know because if the Poitiers name was from earlier English, it wouldn't be pronounced that way. Poitiers is French. But if we're talking about Poitiers from a thousand years ago, it would have been distorted because as we learn on this show, sounds distort all the time. For example, Lonnie Guineer's name isn't pronounced Lonnie Guinier. Instead, it's pronounced Lonnie Guineer, as in that word Guinier distorted by Anglophone mouths into Guineer, like that. Well, with Poitiers, it would be like Poitier or something like that, not Poitiers. So you can decide. Almost certainly, Sidney Poitier's name was a result of that Haitian infusion rather than the absolutely antique English version of the Poitier name. Okay, our third figure, Max Julien. He is probably less generally renowned than Lonnie Guineer. Max Julien, though, has probably been seen by more people than Lonnie Guineer. He was the lead in the classic black exploitation picture, The Mac. And he happened to pass away a couple weeks ago. And The Mac is iconic. They're people who can, you know, cite it chapter and verse the way other people can do The Wizard of Oz or All About Eve or The Godfather or Scarface. And it's one of those things, you know, try to see it in a conventional way. We're in a funny place in terms of the availability of movies. I mean, if you want to see a movie, there are ways that you can absolutely easily do it. But if you want to do it in a kind of a bourgeois, ordinary way, the Mac is tough unless you've got old VHS at this point. It's kind of like A Thousand Clowns, this classic 
I mean, now rather pat, but classic early 60s movie. Try seeing it. You're not going to stream it. You can't have it physically unless you buy something ancient. Try to see. Talk about Sidney Poitier, the defiant ones. I never actually have. It's him and Tony Curtis chained together. I know about it. I have seen a Warner Brothers cartoon that does a riff on it. I've tried to see it. I didn't try very hard, but, you know, right now, you can't have it unless you go to deep, dark places. It's not right. The Mac has become one of those things. But Max Julian. And where does Julian come from? Well, for one, you can trace it back to Greek Eovilios. Julian was Eovilios, and that meant of Jove. Jove, Eov. Then the Ilios essentially is the of. So Julian, Eovilios. What is the relationship between Eovilios and Julian? How does that happen? Well, there are various things. It's sort of one thing after another where you start with one thing and then you get something that seems nothing like it because of the passage of time and the fact that sounds get screwed up in human mouths. And so, Eov, Jove, Eoj, Ejy. Okay. Well, if you have an E, an I, so to speak, an E at the beginning of something like Eo, well, that just wants to be Yo. E very easily becomes what we think of as a Y over time. And so, for example, I, as in I go to school, in Italian, Io, in Spanish, Yo. There's a reason for that, because E goes to Y over time when it's sitting in front of a vowel. So if you hear a word like eovilios in Greek, you can just imagine that in some other language it's going to be yovilios. Very easy. Now, once you get to yovilios, it's not as if the world stops spinning. Once you get to yovilios, well, where else is it going to go? It's always going somewhere. You know, you can't stop the beat. No, I'm not going to play that song from Hairspray. But so, yovilios. Well, what happens then? Something called palatalization. Sounds boring or maybe culinary or something. But yovilios. Well, you're going to go up. You start, you know, rubbing your tongue up against the top of your mouth because it feels good or something. And so, yovilios, jovilios, jovilios. It's probably going to happen. Y often goes to j, jovilios. So, for example, in quote-unquote real Spanish, especially here in the United States, yo for I, often j. People make jokes about that among, say, Puerto Ricans, but it's real and it's natural. Of course a y is going to become a j. And so, yovilios, you can imagine somewhere else it's going to be jovilios. And that's how you get from eovilios to jovilios, that part there. So, how do you get from eovilios to just julian? Eovilios, julian, where you just have this ooh. Well, that's because of u and v. They're next to each other for a reason, and you don't necessarily think of them as alike. U is a vowel, ooh. V is a consonant, v, so oof, oof. They don't sound like they're alike, but they're stories about letters, and there are reasons that letters are buried next to each other, so to speak, like U and V. And I've been thinking about letters lately a lot. Great courses, hint, 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 been thinking about it, writing stuff down, and so oof, oof. Why are they related? Well, here's how it goes. We have to go all the way back to the Phoenicians. So we're in the Mediterranean and the Eastern Mediterranean, where today we have you know, Cyprus and Lebanon, etc. The Phoenicians are Semitic language speaking people. They essentially speak Hebrew, but 
different. And they are the first people to have an alphabet that comes down to us in clear form. They got it from Egypt, and they have an alphabet. And their alphabet ends up seeding all of the alphabets, so to speak, of the world. It's rather miraculous. But at first, it's these Mediterranean sea traders. The Phoenicians really got around, and they had their alphabet mostly to help them with their business practices, and then the next thing you know, you start writing other things. The Phoenicians had this thing that looked like what we now think of as a Y, their Y-shaped letter. And that for them, it's not, yeah, they have something else for that. It is ooh. Now, the Greeks take that Y thing, and it means ooh. Imagine you're dealing with this Y thing, and you're writing it over and over, and often you know, you're doing it in clay with a stylus, etc. How are you going to start writing that Y in order to make it not so hard? You're going to leave the tail off. You're going to make it just a quick, quick. You want it to be a quick two strokes, v, like that. Okay, so they start writing this Y shape as a V. Now you're thinking, well, what about real Y? That's a whole different story we're not going to tell today. But originally they take the Phoenicians Y shape and they make it what to us now is a V. But that is not what it meant in Greek. That V was an U. And the Romans take it. They take Greek's alphabet, then things really start taking off when the Romans have it. And it's U. Now, why is it Ooh, you're kind of thinking, don't they need a V? Well, for one thing, nobody would have thought of that, especially because in Latin, there was no V properly. And you know how this goes in languages. All languages don't have all sounds. And so with French, you know, you don't have th. And that's why a French person might say this instead of this. Or Iroquoian languages like Cayuga and Seneca for example, in the New York State region and then up into Canada. Iroquoian Native American languages don't have sounds that involve putting your lips together. For no reason, it's just a chance thing. I've pointed that out on this show before, but you know, I know there are those of you who have heard what is now all 145 episodes that I've done. I take the liberty of assuming that that is a minority of you, and I think I mentioned this probably... It's going on a couple of years ago. I remember doing the Native American show in my closet when we weren't sure whether we were ever going to go back to studios again. And I didn't have real equipment. I was shirtless and sweating in my closet and doing the show. That was a while ago. So Iroquoian languages do not have sounds where you put your lips together. They just don't. One of my daughters is, is being taught about the Iroquoians in school. And I ask her, well, what did you learn about them? And she keeps, well, they had long houses. And I'm thinking, isn't that kind of mundane? Hi, I'm an Iroquoian. My house is longer than yours. And I said, well, what else about them? And she said, well, they, they hunted. And I thought, well, who doesn't? You know, what's quirky about these people? And I told her to tell her teacher that Iroquoian languages don't put their lips together. So this is a clip, actually, of Seneca. And just listen to it. Here's a language, but there's kind of the dog that doesn't bark. The closest you come to putting your lips together is the w sound. But notice that with w, the lips don't actually touch. But no m, b, p. Just listen. This is the way things can be. Latin didn't have a V. You don't have to have a V. And so, at first, you have this V, 
there. Now, U, which we think of as so normal, the U shape, at first, that's just a way of indicating V when you're writing quickly, when you're being stylistically cute, and gradually it becomes processed as kind of a lowercase V. So really, it's V, and then the lowercase way of writing it is U. But it had nothing to do with the two sounds U and V. All of it is just U. And that's why, say, Julius in Latin looks like Julius. Of course, they didn't pronounce it that way. The V was an U, Julius. V only happens later. A language may not have V, but it probably will develop it at some point. But it's going to be through this sort of step-by-step process, which is the way language really works. And so, for example, in Latin, let's say that you're going to say something like goodbye. And you say, wale. So, uale, like that. Well, if you say wale, you're putting your lips almost together with the wu, like we said. Well, you might put your lips together. It might be that after a while, you start saying bale, wale, bale. Subtle difference. You might not even notice it as time goes by. That happened. So there was a stage of Latin where you had what was in writing, a wu at the beginning, but people were pronouncing it b. And so bale. Now, if you say bale enough, and it's going to change, and you know, you can't stop the beat, things are going to change. Vale, vale, that can happen too. That's how you got a V in late Latin, from vale to vale to vale. And then Latin passes that on to the languages that it became, like French. So in French, you have words like, you know, valoir for, you know, value or something like that. That would have been ualoir, basically, in Latin itself. The V comes from something that had happened over time in Latin. So the V letter originally means U, like Julius, but then by late Latin, it can mean V. So French is dealing with having a V that can mean U in some places and V in other places. And V and U feel like they're the same thing, which is not impossible. U, V. Both of them are putting the lips kind of together. U, V, U, V. French passes on words to English, and so you have this issue of this relationship between the V shape and the U shape. It's the weirdest thing. So you have this weird situation where there's a letter V, there's a variation on it, which is what we think of as U, but they just think of as a variation on V. And there are various traditions as to when you use the V shape and when you use the U shape. And there are some cases where this V thing is now pronounced V, as we expect, but other cases where it's still pronounced U, as in something like Julienne. You can still write that with a V. So how do you deal with this thing where V is two things? It's both U and V, and then you have this other way of writing V, which is this U thing, which they think of as just a variation on the V. Well, interestingly, in English, the way they did it was that if you read English before about 1700, the idea is that you use the V shape at the beginning of a word, whether it's V or U, and then you use the U shape in the middle of a word, whether it's V or U. And so under in earlier written English is often Wunder. It's pronounced under, but the idea is that you use the V shape at the beginning. And then for a word like save, it's written sav. It's part of what makes medieval English look so odd. They meant sav, but the idea is you use the U shape of this V thing that toggles between U and V when it's in the middle 
of the word. Only around 1700 did they decide that the U shape means U and U and U, and the V shape means V, which we think of as the most normal thing in the world. But that's how you get Julian, where you used to have a V in there. Julian, Jovilius. Well, the V ends up becoming just an U. So that's how you get from Jovilius to Julian, because if you think about it, in Greek, it was Jovilius. It wasn't Jovilius. That's just on the page. So for them, it was already an U, and it stayed that way. It's the V that changed. What did a V mean? And so we see it spelled that way now, and we think, well, it was Jovilius. No, it was Jovilius. V to us is a very different thing. All of this means that we have to hear a song from the 1929 Marx Brothers musical, The Coconuts, which was filmed here in New York City, not far from where I'm recording this right now in Queens, actually. We have to hear a song called The Monkey Doodle Doo. This is the original rendition in the now antique, almost 100-year-old film, catchy little tune. And so here's The Monkey Doodle Doo. You'll, you'll see why in a second. Why? Because I have to correct myself. And it's on the Hebrew, and I love Hebrew so much, and I screwed it up in my hurry in the last show. I was talking about monkeys freezing. And for some reason, I had the words beginning with R. And so, Rofim as monkeys. You, you Israelis must have, you know, probably tuned out right there. It's Kofim, 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 monkeys freeze. It's with a K. I don't know why I made it an R, maybe because I wanted to make that sound, but frankly, because I'm an Anglophone, I don't like making that sound. I don't know where that came from. That was just a, a brain knockout, and I apologize to the Israeli and Hebrew speaking among you for disrespecting your language. But to make up for it, I'll give you a little bit of trivia. The person who was singing Monkey Doodle Doo, that was Mary Eaton in 1929. And she, frankly, was only so good, she drank herself to death. But she was one of three sisters, all of whom were performers. Doris Eaton lived until 106. She was still alive and kicking, literally kicking, dancing over 100. She was a Ziegfeld Follies girl. She died in 2010. She lived to be 106. Mary Eaton didn't. But you were listening to Doris Eaton's sister singing in 1929. In any case, that's what I get out of Poitiers, Guineer, and Julien. There's just all sorts of lessons you can get from those three names. And if you'd like to leave a comment or check out our other great podcasts at Booksmart, Banished, and Bully Pulpit, or subscribe, subscribe please, please visit booksmartstudios.org. Our producers are Matthew Schwartz and, as always, Mike Volo. Our theme music was created by Harvest Creative Services. And, you know, I didn't mention the culinary julienning. It has to be vegetables, right? It's not like slicing lamb for a plov standing in a beautiful way over a counter, the way someone might. You're cutting up vegetables, but yes, julienning is vegetables. And I didn't mention it because... 
Well, I, I just did. But in any case, these sister podcasts, again, are banished about cancel culture and bully pulpit about much else. And I am John McWhorter. <laughs>